President Biden reacts to the midterm election results as control of Congress remains undetermined. He says it's clear to him the predicted GOP red wave won't happen. He gives the credit in part to young voters. And I've never been more optimistic about America's future than I am today. You know, I, particularly because of all those young people I talk about, 18 to 30. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden's take on the midterm results and a political analyst says when Republican Charlie Baker turns over the governor's office to Democrat Maura Healey, it'll mark the start of one party control on Beacon Hill. And that means Democrats will take all the heat. When you have the foil of a Republican governor, Democrats can say that's why we didn't fix transportation. That's why we didn't fix X. Well, that foil is gone. These stories, the forecast and the number from Wall Street coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack. President Biden is calling the midterm election results a good day for democracy by noting while some Democrats lost and not all of the races have officially been counted, he says predictions by pundits and some of the press of a red wave did not materialize. Biden says his party lost fewer congressional seats than in any midterm in 40 years, president crediting some of that to what appears to have been a strong turnout by younger voters. They sent a clear and unmistakable message that they want to uh, preserve our democracy and protect the right to choose uh, in this country. And I especially want to thank the young people of this nation who I'm told, I haven't seen the numbers, uh, voted historic numbers again. Biden promised to continue to hold the line on taxes for most Americans and said he would not agree to any attempt to cut Medicare or Social Security or put in place a federal ban on abortion. He said the U.S. cannot be trapped in endless political warfare. Pennsylvania's Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman has won that state's race for an open U.S. Senate seat. That's according to the Associated Press. NPR's Jeff Brady says it was a significant win for Democrats. Fetterman defeated celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz, who Donald Trump endorsed. Fetterman supporter David Hardigan said one of Oz's problems was his recent move from New Jersey to Pennsylvania a year before running for the seat. He was a carpetbagger. It's <laughs> as simple as that. I mean, you don't have to go any farther. And the man had no experience. Outside the venue where Fetterman delivered his victory speech, Sherry Morris said she appreciates the senator-elect's defense of working people. I think it means that we're going to have somebody in Washington who uh, is true to his word, fights for the people. Fetterman will replace retiring Republican Senator Pat Toomey. Jeff Brady, NPR News, Pittsburgh. In what appears to be a major setback for Moscow, Russia says it's pulling its troops back from Kherson. If true withdrawal from the capital would represent a serious blow to the Kremlin, NPR's Charles Maines has more. The retreat from Kherson was ordered by Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu on the advice of his commander in Ukraine, General Sergei Serevikin, in a televised exchange. Sotovikin called for Russia's defenses to withdraw to the eastern bank of the Dnipro River across from the city, calling it a difficult decision that was necessary to save the lives of soldiers and civilians. Ukrainian officials are reacting cautiously to the news, saying there was no evidence of a withdrawal and, in fact, signs Russia still plans a defense of the city. Kherson is, or perhaps was, the lone regional capital seized by Russian forces since they entered Ukraine in February. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks closed near their session lows today amid a continued rout in cryptocurrencies and some lingering uncertainty over the final election results. The Dow dropped 646 points. The Nasdaq was down 263 points. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The transition of leadership is underway at the Massachusetts State House following yesterday's election. This afternoon in the executive suite, Governor-elect Maura Healey met outgoing Governor Charlie Baker. Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito and her successor, Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll, took part in the meeting. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. The meeting was to kick off the two-month-long transition period. Governor Baker said his team will be working to make sure the incoming administration has all the resources it needs for a smooth and productive transition. Healy says she appreciates the time and thoughtfulness the incumbents have made to ensure a smooth transition. The governor has extended us the invitation to attend the winter planning meeting. It's just another reflection of the kind of smooth transition that we're all going to work uh, closely together to ensure so that we're able to hit the ground running day one. Healy announced that her running mate, Kim Driscoll, will chair her side of the transition team. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Massachusetts voters have approved ballot question four by a vote of 54 percent to 46 percent. The vote upholds a new law that allows immigrants who are in the country illegally to get a Massachusetts driver's license. Boston City Councilor Julia Mejia says her mother was undocumented for a time. The councilor says she is thrilled with the vote. Just having access to being able to drive safe and legally here is going to be a game changer um, for so many uh, folks who are undocumented here in the city uh, and across the state of Massachusetts. Critics say the new law improperly rewards people who are in the country illegally. The measure goes into effect July 1st. Another closely contested ballot question has now been decided. Votes passed, uh, voters passed the so-called millionaires tax, 52 to 48 percent. It's a constitutional amendment that adds a 4 percent surtax on personal incomes over $1 million. Supporters say the change creates a more fair tax system. Opponents say it will hurt small business owners by punishing their success with higher taxes. 48 degrees now in the Boston area, clear enough to see the big bright moon tonight. Cold though, only about 40 degrees. And then tomorrow starts a warming trend. We could make it to 60 with a good wind. Friday should bring back the feel of springtime. Highs around 70 degrees. 48 degrees now in Boston at 506. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Alyssa Nadworny. With results still coming in, control of both chambers of Congress remain undetermined. A December recount will decide the winner of Georgia's Senate race between the incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And key Senate races in Arizona and Nevada are still too close to call. As for the House, Republicans are seeing modest gains so far, but nothing close to a red wave that many in their party had hoped for. Yet House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy ended last night ensuring that the GOP would claim a victory. When you wake up tomorrow, we will be in the majority and Nancy Pelosi will be in the minority. The timing of that prediction didn't pan out for McCarthy. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, who was at GOP headquarters on election night, joins us now. Hey, Deirdre. Hey, Alyssa. Okay, so that was last night. Today, McCarthy wrote a letter intending to run for majority leader, but it's kind of too soon, maybe, to boast that his party's going to gain control of the House, right? Right. He officially launched his bid for speaker. Um, last night, His he was definitely a little bit premature. Um, you know, 
Democrats I talked to today say they would have to do everything right. There is technically a path for them to get to the majority, but they admit that they believe that Republicans will end up with the House majority when we know all the results, but it will be obviously a much smaller majority than people expected. I mean, you know, I think for McCarthy, um, you know, he has to balance a lot of blowback for the expectations that he and his top allies set for this midterm election. At one point, he said they could pick up 60 seats. Then, you know, in the final days, there were predictions about 20 to 23 seats. You know, they did knock off the head of the House Democrats campaign committee, Sean Patrick Maloney. That was, you know, something that hasn't happened in more than 40 years. But, you know, they are they did not flip a majority of the competitive races. And we're still waiting for results in a lot of those. The fact that it's so close. What impact is that going to have on McCarthy's future and the ability for him to kind of govern his own caucus? Right now, there's no one challenging McCarthy to become the next speaker if that's what ends up happening. Uh, He will face an election next week in his conference. Uh, Right now, I expect he could win that, but he also has to win a full House vote in January. There is an eternity between November and January in politics. So uh, he could face a lot of uh, challenges if he has a much smaller Republican majority with some House Republicans making demands for things that they want in exchange for their votes. So I think this is going to be a real unsettling time for McCarthy and the Republican conference in the, the weeks ahead. Let's go to the Senate. What what, uh, races are you watching closely? Really, right now, it's come down to Arizona and Nevada. As you said, we don't know the close the 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 results in those yeah. contests yet. Uh, in in Arizona, Democratic incumbent Mark Kelly uh, has a small lead, uh, but it could take some time to finish counting those results against Republican Blake Masters in Nevada. Uh, Democratic incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto, the only Latina Democrat in the Senate, also has a small lead. Um, Actually, I think her opponent, Republican Adam Laxalt, has a small lead. Um, But we are we're still waiting on results. And as you mentioned, we're going to have a runoff in Georgia. So control of the Senate might not be decided until December. Wow. That was NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Alyssa. All right. As we've been hearing, this election is not over yet, but there are still lessons to be learned for Republicans, for Democrats, for everyone in between. And here with his major takeaways is NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey there. All right. So we all know the day after Election Day is upon us. Results are still coming in. There are any number of perspectives on what's important to notice right now, especially if you spend a lot of time on social media. But as we've been talking about, elections do have lessons, right? So let's start with that. What lessons should both of these parties take away from this midterm election? Well, maybe one of the lessons is don't spend too much time on social media. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lesson for all of us. Everybody's got their own perspectives and views on what they think was going to happen or could happen or might be happening. We preached patience beforehand. We said that this was the next phase in really election season. And that's what's playing out right now. I mean, uh, it was mentioned that, that some of these races are taking a while. We expected that to be the case. We expected that all of these Senate races would be super close, sort of ignored the polls, frankly. 
frankly, for most months, even though, honestly, the polls were pretty close to being right, uh, and certainly within the margin of error uh, in a lot of different places. But clearly, Republicans underperformed in the House, and there's going to be a lot of finger pointing right now, and there is already at Kevin McCarthy and at uh, former President Trump in particular. Okay, so... We still don't know the balance of power in the Senate. You have been telling all of us for weeks to be patient, to be patient about the results. How much longer do you think we have to be patient? (laughs) Your whole life, Elsa. Um, You know, Arizona, probably we're not going to see real results uh, as a final final thing potentially until Friday. Um, Maricopa County, uh, where most of the vote really comes from and where there were some struggles early on in counting and which has been ground zero for a lot of election denialism, uh, is probably not going to be reporting. uh, They may be reporting all of the results by then is when they hope. So, you know, we're looking at least until then, uh, you know, these races are super close. Democrats have one pickup in the Senate um, with Pennsylvania. That means that it really could come down to Georgia on December 6th, depending on the outcomes in Arizona and Nevada, which, again, are exceedingly close. And I do think people have to be a little patient with the results in the House. You know, we we are certainly seeing Republicans have underperformed what they wanted. But, you know, no one was ever really thinking that there was going to be the chance of a uh, 60-seat change. That was never going to be the case because of how narrow the playing field is. And what we really saw were some candidate quality issues on the Republican side and some really good Democratic incumbents who held off some of those folks uh, and really made a difference. And I really think abortion rights as an issue really was a motivating factor for so many people. That's why the cross currents of this election were so volatile for so long. Yeah. Well, Domenico, you are our numbers guy. You spent a lot of time poring over data on, you know, about polls, researching about voters. You mentioned that the polls actually turned out to be pretty close to the mark. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How did the polls do? And and did anything actually surprise you? Well, you know, I, This is one of those things. The narratives kind of get ahead sometimes of the data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly the narrative was that um, Republicans were closing the gap or were expanding uh, what could be potentially, you know, much bigger uh, victories. And all of that was certainly possible. But we also had to be prepared for the other scenario where it's not not necessarily going to be at that height. You know, right now it looks like they could win, you know, seats anywhere from eight to a dozen, which would be at the low end of the forecasters expectations, but not outside the realm of possibility. I think one of the things that we did see, and I was talking to one of our pollsters earlier about this, is that the congressional generic ballot, which asked people, who do you want to be in charge of Congress right now, was tied. And that pollsters have actually done a pretty good job in recent years of figuring out uh, to make that better. And enthusiasm varied state by state, especially in midterm elections. And that's one caveat going forward in other elections. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you so much, Domenico. Hey, welcome. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The LGBTQ community in Massachusetts is celebrating Maura Healey. Last night, Healey became the first openly lesbian woman in the U.S. to be elected a governor. Another gay woman, Tina Kotek, has a narrow lead today in the governor's race in Oregon. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. The historic moment wasn't lost on Maura Healey at her victory party at the Fairmont Copley Plaza last night. I want to say something to every little girl and every young LGBTQ person out there. I hope, 
I hope tonight shows you that you can be whatever, whoever you want to be. Arlene Isaacson is co-chair of the Massachusetts GLBTQ Political Caucus. She remembers how hard it was to pass a gay and lesbian civil rights bill in the state three decades ago. There were legislators on the floor of the state Senate who actually called us and lesbos in the middle of the debate. Isaacson says some lawmakers refused to even speak to her. So you juxtapose that to the fact that we just elected an out and proud lesbian. It's as yin and yang as you can get. Grace Sterling Stowell has been the executive director of the Boston Alliance of LGBTQ Youth since the 1980s. She says Healy's win is the result of decades of organizing. Back then, we were trying to survive and get basic legal protections, basic support, basic services, and something like uh, an out lesbian governor of Massachusetts. It was unimaginable. Despite last night's election, Isaacson of the GLBTQ Political Caucus says people in the community still feel vulnerable. There are a number of forces in this state and in this country that would like to roll back a lot of the the, the benefits that we want and the protections that we've won. Isaacson points to a Florida law that bans classroom instruction on sexual orientation, along with efforts in several states to restrict hormone therapy and other procedures for transgender minors. We've made enormous strides, and Mara is a quintessential example of it, her election last night. But the fact of the matter is, it ain't over till it's over. Healy will be sworn in as governor in January. In her new role, Healy says she will work to protect the rights of other people in the LGBTQ community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. This is WBUR in Boston. Coming up, we look at how candidates who Donald Trump endorsed fared in yesterday's election. And Russia says it's withdrawing troops from a key city in Ukraine in a major blow to Vladimir Putin's war effort. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston, a bilingual, globally-minded education from preschool to high school. Learn more at gisbos.org. Stocks took a dive the day after the midterms. The Dow gave up nearly 2%, 647 points, to close at 32,514. S&P rose just over 2% to end the day at 3749, and the Nasdaq lost about 2.5% to settle at 10,353. Meta is not commenting on how layoffs will affect its workers in the Boston area. The company, which owns Facebook, said today it's laying off 11,000 people. More than 200 were employed at Facebook's Kendall Square office as of last year. Business news on Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 5.19. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Boston Symphony Orchestra is coming off the first performance of its tour in Japan. This is the BSO's first international tour since the start of the pandemic. The musicians played their first concert in Yokohama. Assistant concertmaster Elita Kang says tours like this one are an extension of the symphony's goal of being cultural and artistic ambassadors. People sometimes refer to what we do as the universal language. It's wonderful to do something that transcends the spoken word in many instances. 
The last time the BSO performed in Japan was in 2018. In the forecast, should be a beautiful night tonight, but a chilly one down around 40 degrees. Then for tomorrow, could make it to the mid-60s with a strong wind. Friday, bringing back the feel of springtime, highs about 70 degrees. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. The war in Ukraine took another turn today. From the Ukrainian perspective, a good turn. Russia announced that it will withdraw its troops from Kherson, a key city in southern Ukraine. Joining us now are NPR's Jason Bobian, who is in Dnipro in southern Ukraine, and NPR's Charles Maines, who joins us from Moscow. Welcome to both of you. Hi there. Hey, Elsa. So, Charles, I want to start with you. Who exactly on the Russian side made this decision to withdraw? I mean, do we know? Yeah, we, you know, we learned of this through what looked like a rather staged video on state television uh, in which the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, called on the commander of his forces in Ukraine. This is General Sergei Surovikin uh, to fill in the top brass on how things were going. Uh, Surovikin started off on a positive note, saying that Russia's military campaign had stabilized after recent setbacks. But then Shoigu asked about Kherson, uh, this city where Ukrainian forces have been closing in for weeks. And Surovikin's response was that Russian troops should pull back to the eastern bank of the Dnipro River that borders the city. In other words, retreat. So here Sarovikin says he understands this is not an easy decision, but one that was necessary to save the lives of military personnel as well as the combat capability of Russia's forces going forward. Uh, Shoigu agreed and gave the order. Well, Jason, I mean, we've been hearing about this battle for Kherson for months now, right? Like, does this mean yeah. that the Ukrainians definitively have this city? No, uh, there's still the potential for a major battle here. Uh, okay. Russia is simply saying, as Charles just mentioned, that it's going to pull back to the east side of the river. But this has been, and it continues to be, an artillery war. So from the east bank, Russian artillery will still be able to pound Kherson if and when Ukrainian troops try to move into it. Mm -hmm. What this withdrawal does do is it gives the Russians an escape route. It had been starting to look like the Russian forces could be backed up against the river. Ukraine had destroyed the lone bridge out of Kherson to the east. So Russia faced this potential scenario where they'd have a lot of troops in Kherson that could be easily surrounded with nowhere to go. Uh, and this withdrawal to the East Bank avoids that. Okay. Well, can we just step back a little bit and talk about Kherson? Because like, why would Ukraine potentially recapturing the city be significant if it were to happen? You know, this is the only regional capital that Russia has seized in this military campaign this year. Russian troops actually put up the Russian flag in Kherson on February 25th, one day after the invasion started. So losing Kherson, it's a huge embarrassment for Moscow. Uh, I mean, I'll remind you that this is the capital of one of the regions that President Putin 
just in September announced he was annexing to the Russian Federation forever. And if Ukraine does take back Kherson city, it, it comes on the heels of some other significant victories by Ukrainian troops, particularly rapid counteroffensives that took huge swaths of the Kharkiv region in the east. Well, meanwhile, Charles, I'm just curious, how has this news been received in Moscow? Like, what does this mean for the Russian war effort? Well, you know, there were signs that the Kremlin knew this was coming. Uh, for example, that flag Jason mentioned was taken down last week. It disappeared from the Harrison administrative building. Uh, meanwhile, there have been reports that state media had been instructed on how to explain the withdrawal to Russians as, as basically an, an operation to save lives. Uh, but of course, some see this as a disaster. You know, For weeks, uh, the Russian-backed proxy government has been insisting that Russia would never abandon the city. And even now, uh, there are those who are holding out hope that this is some kind of sleight of hand, you know, a clever plan by this General Sorovikin, hmm. uh, which, in fact, the authorities in Kiev say it may well be. Uh, and in that sense, uh, you know, it's interesting to see reaction of increasingly high-profile voices inside Russia, uh, like Yevgeny Prigozhin. He's sometimes known as Putin's chef. Uh, Prigozhin controls a group of mercenaries that operate in Ukraine. And he's been very critical of the defense ministry before Sorovikin took over as commander. And yet, even as Sorovikin called for this pullback, uh, Prigozhin praised the general for making the politically unpopular decision, uh, but with an eye towards fighting another day. So I guess it's worth reminding everyone this war is far from over, despite today's announcement. Right, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can expect that Russia is going to dig in on the east bank of the river. There's already signs that they're doing that. And, And I should point out that some of the most intense fighting in the war right now, you know, not to downplay what's happening around Kherson because it's significant in the south, but some of the most brutal battles are happening right now in the east around Donetsk, and there's no sign of that easing up. That is NPR's Jason Bobian and Charles Maines. Thank you to both of you. Good to be with you. You're welcome. Midterm elections are usually bad for the president's party, but last night held some surprises at the state level. Democrats flipped the House and Senate in Michigan's legislature, and Minnesota's Senate also turned blue. Reporter Alan Greenblatt has been following state legislatures for Governing Magazine. He joins me now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thanks for having me on. So as I said, Michigan and Minnesota are the big upsets. Can you tell us the significance of Democrats gaining control of those state legislatures? Well, certainly in those states, they'll be able to push an agenda that they couldn't have otherwise. Uh, In Minnesota, uh, Democrats will want to codify abortion rights, uh, which they couldn't do if Republicans held the state Senate. Uh, Democrats in Michigan are talking about repealing that state's right to work law and anti-union law that passed under the last um, Republican governor that they had. Um, But it's just significant that Democrats won anywhere. Typically, we'd expect the president's party to lose control in legislatures, and instead they won. Yeah. In your report this morning, you said, quote, Democrats have defied history. Just how unusual is it for a sitting president's party to win seats in midterms? Uh, Highly unusual. So if we go back all the way to 1900, there have been 60 midterms, six zero midterms. The president's party has gained seats in state legislatures only twice in the last 120 years. Once was 1934, when Republicans were still taking a beating for the Great Depression. And then 20 years ago in 2002, George W. Bush was president and Republicans were still enjoying a great deal of public support following the uh, September 11th terrorist attacks. So it's been 20 years, typically on average, the party in the White House loses more than 400 seats nationwide in legislatures during midterms. And it's basically a wash in terms of seats. Republicans still control, they've been dominant 
at the state level and legislatures ever since 2010. They've had big majorities. They still hold more legislatures than Democrats, but they won no new ground last night. Hmm. These historic wins for Democrats on the state level, especially in battleground states like Michigan, what do they tell us about the 2024 presidential election coming up? Like, what do they signal? Well, obviously, if you're a Democrat, you're glad that the party did well winning not just legislative seats, but governor's races in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, uh, Arizona, Nevada, some of the other battleground states out west are still uh, uh, still have not been called. But, um, you know, it's hopeful for Democrats. And between this, uh, the, the Democrats keeping legislative control in both Republicans and Democrats who are not election deniers winning Secretary of State races in the battleground states, um, 2024 might be just a bit less combative than we would have predicted, say, a week ago. Oh, fascinating. And just in the last, you know, 10 seconds, what is what does all this mean for for 2024? Well, um, between now and 2024, states are going to be doing a lot more on policy than Congress. Congress is going to be gridlocked. We're going to have red states and blue states going Mm -hmm. in totally different directions, but passing lots of laws when it comes not only to abortion and things we've been hearing about, but uh, education funding and crime, climate, you name it. Everything. That was Alan Greenblatt. He's a senior staff writer at Governing Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the historic election in Massachusetts as Democrats get single-party control on Beacon Hill. As you've been hearing in the days after the midterm, some things are clear, others need more time to come into focus. So keep listening to 90.9 WBUR for updates and what comes next. Also go to WBUR.org. Clear enough tonight to see the big bright moon. Cold, though, only around 40 degrees. Tomorrow starts a warming trend. We could make it to the mid-60s with a good wind. Friday could bring back the feel of spring around 70 degrees. Could be a grayer day, though, with clouds mixed with some sunshine, the chance of some rain as well. We get a bonus mild day on Saturday. Could hit 72 degrees. Sunday, back to the 50s. 48 degrees now in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, offering luxury suites in historic Back Bay for small group meetings and holiday parties, all catered by Uni Restaurant, ElliottHotel.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, local results of the midterm elections are in, but how will they affect what happens nationally, and especially to our congressional delegation? Former Congressman Mike Capuano joins us with the Boston Herald's Joe Battenfeld to answer that question. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden says yesterday was a good day for democracy. He noted that Democrats lost fewer seats in the House in a midterm election during a Democratic presidency than at any time in 40 years. It's not clear yet which party will control the House. Biden says he's ready to move ahead. Regardless, regardless of what the final tally in these elections show, and there's still some counting going on, I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. Biden's also said that he intends to run for re-election and expects to make a final decision on that early next year. 
The Associated Press says Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has won her election for a second term. As NPR's Miles Parks reports, Benson was one of a number of Democrats running in races to oversee voting, facing candidates who deny the legitimacy of the 2020 election. Following the 2020 election, Democrat Jocelyn Benson became one of the leading state-level voices to defend the integrity of the vote. Former President Donald Trump targeted her for doing so, and as she told NPR last year, the Michigan Secretary of State has faced a torrent of death threats since then. To me, this very much is the very unfortunate new normal where fearing for our safety and having to think about the safety of not just ourselves, but our families, our staff, is part of the job that we take on when we choose to administer democracy. Benson defeated Republican Christina Caramo, who spread conspiracies about elections as well as other things like the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. Miles Parks, NPR News. Stocks closed lower today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 646 points. The S&P 500 dropped 79 points, while the Nasdaq ended the day down 263 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts residents who are top earners will soon pay more in taxes. In a close election, voters approved the so-called millionaire's tax ballot question with 52 percent of the vote. Estimates indicate the measure could raise as much as $2 billion in new revenue in the first year. WBUR's Laura Craigle has more. The passage of question one means the state income tax for those earning over a million dollars will increase from 5 to 9 percent starting next year on the portion of income over one million. Harone Mariani is manager of the Yes on One campaign. He says voters sent a message that the state's existing flat tax rate is unfair. I couldn't be more excited for the working people of Massachusetts to see the wealthiest one percent pay their fair share and for all these great investments in education and transportation. Critics of the measure say there's no guarantee the added revenue will go toward those intended issues. They also say the higher tax rate could drive people and businesses out of state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. Earlier this afternoon, another close race involving a ballot question was called. Votes passed, uh, voters passed a measure to preserve a state law that will allow undocumented immigrants to obtain a Massachusetts driver's license. The vote was 54 to 46 percent. Backers of the measure say it will make roads safer by ensuring drivers are properly trained. Opponents say it could increase the risk of undocumented immigrants voting illegally. Dentists in Massachusetts won a decisive victory over the insurance industry with the passage of Question 2. The ballot measure requires dental insurers to put at least 83 percent of premium dollars toward patient care or pay rebates to their customers. WBR's Gabriella Emanuel reports the American Dental Association hopes this is a national model. Massachusetts is the first state to pass such spending requirements for dental insurance. The ADA poured over $5 million into the effort. It's a sea change moment. Chad Olson directs state government affairs for the ADA. He's eyeing passing similar laws in other states. I can tell you that a number of states, uh, more than a handful, have reached out to me. The No On To campaign, funded by dental insurers, calls the election result disappointing and says it will work with regulators and lawmakers to protect patients from the rising costs the insurance companies foresee. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Governor Charlie Baker is promising his administration will work with his successor, Maura Healy, to ensure a smooth and seamless transition. 
Yesterday, Healy won the race to replace the outgoing governor. Today, she met with Baker at the State House to talk about the next steps as she prepares to take office in January. At that meeting today, Healy named Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll as the chair of her transition team. Connecticut Republicans are hopeful they could put a member of their party in the U.S. House of Representatives for the first time since before the Obama administration. The state's fifth congressional district race is right now too close to call. The race pits incumbent Democrat Johanna Hayes against Republican challenger George Logan. Logan ran as a fiscal conservative and social moderate. He opposes a federal ban on abortion. He trails Hayes by less than a percentage point, with 95 percent of precincts reporting that is a gap of less than 2,000 votes. Currently, New England has just one Republican legislator on Capitol Hill. That's Maine Senator Susan Collins. Prominent Republican candidates lost congressional election bids yesterday in New Hampshire and Rhode Island. They were viewed as potential pickups for the GOP. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. A 99% full moon tonight on the wane. Chilly temperatures down around 41 degrees. Tomorrow, bright sunshine again. Breezy, making it to the mid-60s. Could reach 70 on Friday. Maybe squeeze out 72 degrees on Saturday. This is WBUR 46 degrees now at 537. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. Former President Trump was not on the ballot this year, but many of his preferred candidates were. Trump endorsed more than 200 people in this midterm election. Now, the vast majority won their Republican primaries, and in the general election, many ran in states or districts that were already favored for Republicans. But... Trump's picks in the most competitive, high-profile races had mixed results. And the red wave that he had hoped to create has not come to be. Here to tell us more about this is Tolu Olorunipa. He's the White House bureau chief for The Washington Post. Welcome. It's so great to be with you. Thank you. Great to have you. Okay, so what would you say are the big wins for Trump in these midterms so far? Well, it was a tough night for Trump, but he did have some bright spots. He had some candidates that he endorsed early who ended up winning. I'm thinking of J.D. Vance, the candidate in Ohio for Senate who Trump endorsed in the primary. He was in a very tough primary, and he was able to win that primary, and he went on to win the general election. Um, And so that was probably the biggest win for for Trump. Um, He also endorsed Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who uh, went on to win re-election in a close race there. Uh, So there were some some races where Trump endorsed candidates did pretty well. He endorsed a number of uh, governors and senators in places like Florida, um, where 
Senator Marco Rubio cruised to re-election. Uh, the governor there and the other statewide officials also won re-election with Trump's endorsement. So uh, there were some races where uh, Trump-endorsed candidates did okay. Yeah. Well, what about some high-profile defeats on the, Republic the Republican side? What stands out to you? There are a number of those, and I would start with Pennsylvania. Trump endorsed Dr. Mehmet Oz, uh, the TV uh, uh, actor doctor. and celebrity yeah. <laughs> doctor who uh, is well known in, in uh, across the country, but was not as popular in Pennsylvania and went down and lost that race, the general election to Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Um, there are also a couple of races we're watching very closely in places like Arizona, where Trump endorsed uh, both uh, the Republican Senate candidate, um, Blake Masters, as well as the gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, those races right now have not been called. They're too close. But, uh, you know, it seems like there's a very good chance that those Trump-endorsed uh, far-right candidates who modeled themselves after Donald Trump could lose. Uh, and there are places where Trump went against and opposed Republican candidates that he did not like, um, places like Georgia, where Governor Brian Kemp cruised to re-election, even though Trump tried to take him out during the primary and did not offer his support during uh, the general election, uh, he cruised to re-election pretty easily. Uh, and, you know, we have to also have to talk about the Florida governor's race where Trump did endorse uh, Ron DeSantis, but he has been uh, starting to negatively speak about Ron DeSantis because there is a, a growing call for Ron DeSantis to challenge Trump in 2024. And DeSantis had a great night. He won overwhelmingly in Florida. Yeah. And now there are all these calls for Trump to step aside and allow DeSantis to uh, lead the party into 2024 because he had much better results yeah, yeah. than Trump did last night. Well, let me ask you this, Tolu. I mean, this was certainly, at least not so far, certainly not the giant red wave that Trump had asked his supporters to deliver. Do you think just acknowledging that this year was not the big crashing red wave will have some drag on the Republican Party's agenda over the next two years? Yeah, well, first, I don't even expect Trump to acknowledge that it wasn't a big red wave. He <laughs> will talk enough. about his candidates that won and, and ignore those who lost, or if they lost, he, he will say it was not his fault, it was theirs. Uh, so there is some of that spin that we can expect. But for the party at large, I do believe that this will be a drag on the party because the party is going to have to figure out what kind of Republican party it wants to be. Does it want to be a party of Donald Trump who has lost in a number of these recent elections, who has lost the House, <laughs> lost the Senate, lost the presidency? Or do they want to try to turn the page? And we are starting to hear more voices saying they want to turn the page, but right. it's very difficult to do that when you have someone who's uh, as dominating a figure as Donald Trump. Okay. He has crushed a number of Republicans in the past, and there's no sign yet right. that he's willing to step aside. That is Washington Post White House Bureau Chief Tolu Olurunipa. Thank you very much for joining us today, Tolu. Thank you. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is about to have more women in the top state leadership posts than ever before. Five of the six statewide constitutional offices will be held by women after yesterday's election. The only man is the Secretary of the Commonwealth, Bill Galvin. Governor-elect Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll will become the first winning all-women gubernatorial ticket in U.S. history. To break down the election's impact in Massachusetts, we are joined by Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston. Aaron, we should note that what's being called a big win for women is actually a net gain of just one woman among the state's constitutional officers. Why is it that it's taken this long for Massachusetts, blue Massachusetts, to elect a woman as governor of the state? 
A couple of reasons. One, um, Massachusetts is a highly professionalized state legislature, meaning um, that the job's attractive. And so the state legislature is regularly a pathway to the governor's office. So unfortunately, when the less professionalized the legislature, the more likely it is you see women there. It's also the case in Massachusetts that you know women are still disproportionately responsible for elder care and child care. And we're 37th and 49th in terms of affordability and access there. And last and sort of surprising is single party control. Parties only diversify their candidates when they feel electorally threatened. And Democrats haven't been threatened in Massachusetts. So the old boys club could hold on longer. So can we expect that the state will be run any differently as a result of having so many women in powerful roles? Yes, but it's not extreme. So in political science research, we distinguish between descriptive and substantive representation. Descriptive representation is just you look at Congress, you look at the governor's um, office, and it looks more like Massachusetts. That has a positive effect for girls and boys in terms of political socialization and the idea that I could run for there or it's legitimate for girls to be there. It's a norm for girls to be there. But on to your question on substantive representation, we know that when women enter governor's offices, legislative office, that they legislate a little different. Women ask different questions in committee. They prioritize issues that male candidates tend to ignore. Such as what? So, because I have to say that when Maura Healy made her speech last night, she mentioned a lot of issues, including transportation, uh, affordable housing, that the incumbent governor, Charlie Baker, has also mentioned. Agreed. There's a lot of parallel, but there's also, think of it as concentric circles where, um, you know, seven-eighths overlap, but that other eighth in the sort of quiet policy and politics that might affect women more, might affect lesbian women more, that's where we tend to see women and men legislating different, again, in terms of the prioritization. But you're right, on the environment, affordable housing. Any candidate who wants to win in Massachusetts has to talk about those. But from the research, we see when women are in office, they are also asking questions and dipping into areas that um, previous office holders have ignored. Let's talk about Andrea Campbell, who is the first black woman to be elected attorney general. She'll be replacing Maura Healey. How do you expect that her background, her experiences with her family, in fact, will affect her approach to law enforcement? Her particular biography is one where she's talked about family members who have been involved in the criminal justice system. She'll bring that to the AG's office. She will have a certain understanding. There's never been a Black woman in, in that role. She has talked about issues of race. So we would expect her to bring her identity to the office just like Maura Healy did and just like every white guy before her did. There will now be one-party rule on Beacon Hill, uh, no longer a check from the GOP in the governor's office. Maura Healey and Governor Charlie Baker have a lot in common. I wonder if you expect that there will be something of a loss just the same, since it's going to be Democrats all the way. In the abstract, in political science, we know that electoral competition is a good thing. <laughs> it's better for government transparency. It makes corruption less likely. 
for a long time having a Charlie Baker there. Ironically, Democrats like that because there's a significant amount of ideological diversity amongst the state legislature, amongst Democrats. You've got progressives and pretty conservative Democrats. And when you have the foil of a Republican governor, Democrats can say, that's why we didn't you know, fix transportation. That's why we didn't fix X. Well, that foil is gone. So voters are going to expect that democratic policy outcomes come forward as a result of unitary control, and they will blame those Democrats. It's no longer the case that you're not sure if it's the legislature's fault or Baker's fault. Unitary party control means they are uh, responsible in the voters' minds. Responsible for everything. Yep. The Massachusetts Republican Party had some big losses, and top of mind, of course, is Jeff Deal, the Republican nominee for governor, who had the endorsement of Donald Trump and ran as a Trump ally. It looks like he won just over one-third of the vote in Massachusetts. That was nowhere near what he needed to compete with Maura Healey, but it's one-third of the vote nonetheless, so I wonder how deep blue Massachusetts can be when a Trump-endorsed Republican nominee for governor gets one-third of Massachusetts voters to support him. One-third in states is wildly uncompetitive. You can get one-third of voters to vote for anything. Look at how tight so many of these elections are in Pennsylvania, even in Ohio, you know, six, seven points. Massachusetts is an outlier in terms of how uncompetitive the Republican Party is. Charlie Baker was able to win, especially the second time, and win pretty handily. The drop-off between Charlie Baker and Jeff Deal tells you the kind of Republicanism that works in Massachusetts. Thank you for your perspective this day after the election. Erin O'Brien of UMass Boston. She's co-editor of the book, The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism. Thanks, Erin. Thank you. This is WBUR. Gasoline prices got a lot of attention in the midterms, but high housing costs take a bigger bite out of people's pockets. Coming up in cities across the country, voters approve more spending on affordable housing. Stay with WBUR and WBUR.org as results continue to come in from races in the region. We'll bring you news and analysis, and it all starts bright and early on the air tomorrow with Morning Edition, so tune in. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. 46 degrees now in the Boston area should fall through the 40s tonight with clear skies should end up around 41 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny and milder in the mid-60s. Veterans Day Friday, partly sunny, maybe a little bit of rain. We could see temperatures hike all the way to about 70 degrees. Could hit 72 on Saturday. WBUR supporters include Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. FairbankandPerry.com. Ernest Hemingway said people go bankrupt gradually, then suddenly. Is climate change like that? We are saying goodbye to the permafrost in field sites where I've been monitoring permafrost change for 20 years now. How the climate fight grows tougher tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Supreme Court's conservative majority seemed conflicted today as the justices heard arguments challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act, known as ICWA. The law was enacted more than 40 years ago after a congressional investigation found that public and private agencies had removed a third of all Native children from their homes and placed them in institutions or homes with no ties to Indian tribes. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. ICWA established minimum federal standards for removing Native children from their homes. It required state courts to notify tribes when an Indian child is removed from her family, and it required that in foster and adoption placement, preferences be given first to the child's extended family, then to other members of the tribe, and if neither is available, the preference is for a child to be placed with a different tribe. In the court today, lawyers for the state of Texas and for non-Native adoptive parents told the justices that ICWA violates the Constitution by discriminating based on race. Some of the justices noted that if the court were to strike down ICWA, legions of cases dating back to the early days of the Republic would have to be similarly struck down. Justice Gorsuch noted that the Constitution gives Congress plenary authority, meaning complete authority, to legislate on behalf of Indian Americans. Addressing the lawyer for the challengers, Gorsuch, like several other justices, said the challengers' objections to ICWA are really objections to the policy choices that Congress adopted in the law. The policy arguments might be better addressed across the street. Meaning that if you want to change the law, go to Congress, not the courts. The court's liberals joined Gorsuch in noting that the court has long viewed Indians as a political group, not a racial one. The tribes are viewed as separate sovereigns under the Constitution, and Congress has enacted a wide variety of laws to protect Native people. This law, noted Justice Kagan, was enacted for a particular purpose, to protect the tribe's very existence. Representing the state of Texas, Solicitor General Judd Stone argued that even if Congress does have the authority to legislate to protect the tribes, Congress does not have the authority to enlist state governments in enforcing the law. Justice Sotomayor pointed to a wide variety of other laws in which the federal government requires states, for instance, not to conduct any custody or adoption hearing that involves a service member who's deployed. And similarly, the federal government bars default judgments against deployed service members. Those challenging ICWA maintain that Congress cannot legislate for Indians who do not live on a reservation. That prompted Justice Gorsuch to observe that in the West, Indians live on a, quote, checkerboard of land with many on reservations and their Indian neighbors not on a reservation. But Chief Justice Roberts and fellow conservatives Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Alito focused repeatedly on ICWA's third preference for placement in a tribal home instead of an adoption by a non-Indian family. As the Chief Justice put it, Is competence the threshold or uh, is the agency allowed to consider uh, the relative best interests of the two different proposed placements. Representing the federal government, Deputy Solicitor General Edwin Needler said the purpose of the law is to prevent children from being taken away from their families, from their extended families, from their tribes and their kin. Chief Justice Roberts picked up the same theme in questioning the lawyer for the tribes, Ian Gershengorn. Do you think that ICWA incorporates the familiar best interests of the child inquiry that are, are applied in 
family courts uh, throughout the country? No, replied Gershengorn, because Congress found the best interests were being applied in a discriminatory way. That said, he added, ICWA has a provision allowing special exemptions in some cases. Justice Kagan followed up. I think um, some of the strong feelings about this case come from a sense of, yes, but what about the children? I mean, you do harm the political community, but are you saying that the political community is more important than the welfare of the children? The Supreme Court's expected to decide the case by the end of this term. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Affordable housing measures were on midterm election ballots in dozens of localities across the country. It's a sign of the pain people have been feeling as a historic housing shortage has pushed rents and home prices to record highs. And a number of cities just approved hundreds of millions of dollars in new spending to do something about it. Potentially billions of dollars once the final ballots are counted in some places. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is here to tell us more. Hi, Jennifer. Hi there. So what kinds of things will cities be able to do now that they have this new spending? Lots of different things, but generally uh, they'll be able to build or subsidize more affordable housing, repair existing housing, buy land for more housing. Uh, Some measures are for workforce housing, you know, police officers or firefighters who can't afford to live where their job is. Uh, And some will help keep people out of homelessness. Um, Tara Raghavir is with KC Tenants, which helped pass a Kansas City measure to require deeply affordable housing. That's rent around five to seven hundred dollars. She's been frustrated that gas prices get all the attention these midterms. And she says housing is a much bigger chunk, chunk of people's budgets. And unlike gas, it doesn't go back down, only up. There is not a county in the country where a worker earning minimum wage and working full time can afford a two bedroom apartment. And that's been true now for years. And also, this is no longer a city issue, but it's one that's expanding out to the suburbs and even rural communities. I should add two measures elsewhere that appear close to passing. Colorado would designate nearly 2% of state income tax revenues for affordable housing. And Los Angeles could raise an enormous amount by taxing property sales over $5 million. Can you step back and remind us, how did we get to this point? Like, Why can so many people not afford rent or find a house that they can afford to buy? So many reasons, but just a couple big ones. You know, after the last housing crash in 2008, U.S. construction dropped off for a good decade. Uh, we're millions of units in the hole. And federal spending on affordable housing has really declined in recent decades. All this has big consequences for the country's racial gap in home ownership. It's actually widened, and now higher mortgage rates don't help. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week, the National Association of Realtors said the share of first-time home buyers had dropped to a record low. It found those who can buy are older, whiter, wealthier, and a lot are getting help, like from their parents or even dipping into their own retirement or other savings for a down payment. So is all this going to help make a difference for renters or people trying to buy a house? You know, I put that to Yana Freemark at the Urban Institute, uh, who, by the way, thinks it's pretty remarkable. So many voters approve this spending, even as they struggle with inflation. Um, but his answer was a bit of a downer. You know, affordable housing is going to be a struggle that I think we're all going to face for the rest of our lifetimes, no matter our age. And these measures will certainly open up thousands of units across the country that will become permanently affordable for low and moderate income people, but it will not solve our housing crisis. So, yeah, Freemark says everyone at every level just needs to keep at it 
finding new ways to create housing people can actually afford. NPR's Jennifer Ludden, thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett, running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The midterms went better for President Biden than most polls and pundits predicted. Some key votes are still being counted, but so far it looks as if he and the Democratic Party are poised to buck historical midterm election trends by avoiding major losses. It's Wednesday, November 9th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, statewide votes on abortion played a huge role in the midterm elections. Measures that defend abortion rights won in red states and blue ones. When you put this issue directly to voters, voters decide that they want to retain access to abortion services for people in their states. We'll have more on some of these ballot measures coming up. Also, how do you govern a divided country after the midterms? And Russian authorities are moving basketball player Brittany Griner to a remote penal colony. Her lawyers say they don't know where it is. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is officially launching his bid for the top leadership post in the chamber. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Republicans are expected to flip the House after Tuesday's midterm elections, but there are still a number of races that have yet to be called. While Republicans are likely to regain control in the House, they won't see the gains that they had previously expected. In a letter to his caucus, McCarthy pitched himself as a speaker who will be a listener and strive to build consensus from the bottom up rather than commanding the agenda from the top down. He also pledged to devote the resources necessary for the House to go toe-to-toe with the White House. As Speaker, McCarthy has vowed to secure the southern border and cut back on government spending. Republicans on the Judiciary Committee last week warned the FBI and Department of Justice that they plan to investigate both agencies if their party retakes the House. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Californians have overwhelmingly voted to protect reproductive freedom. The new constitutional amendment enshrines abortion access into state law. 
Leslie McClurg from member station KQED has more. The goal of the new amendment is to protect abortion access even if the political tides in California were to change. And the state were suddenly to see an influx of lawmakers who were not as favorable toward abortion rights. Jody Hicks is the CEO and president of Planned Parenthood of California. We are a reproductive freedom state. People have access to reproductive care, including abortion and contraception, no matter where they call home. Last year, California Governor Gavin Newsom, who was just reelected, began touting California as a sanctuary to anyone denied abortion services in other parts of the country. Newsom ultimately signed more than a dozen abortion-related bills this year and included $200 million in the state budget for reproductive health care services. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg. Vote counting is still underway in a number of states. Arizona, one of those still processing early ballots. NPR's Amina Bustillo has more from Phoenix. Election officials in Maricopa County, Arizona, are expecting it to take days before results are close to final. County recorder Stephen Richer says hundreds of thousands of ballots are yet to be counted and reported. That's due in part to the record-breaking number of ballots dropped off at polling sites on Election Day itself. 270,000 voters dropped off an early ballot on Tuesday, 100,000 more than in 2020. Those ballots still have to go through a series of reviews, including signature verification. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Phoenix. The route in cryptocurrency prices shows no signs of abating, with prices plunging due to ongoing Fed interest rate hikes and other economic headwinds. On Wall Street today, the Dow was down 646 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. After nearly two decades of trying to make driver's licenses available to undocumented Massachusetts residents, many immigrants and advocates are celebrating. Voters approved a ballot question yesterday that upholds a measure passed by lawmakers earlier this year. Here's WBUR's Simone Rios. Adrian Ventura leads a workers' rights center in New Bedford. He says he spent the last 17 years fighting to get licenses for undocumented folks. For Ventura, having a car isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. Llevar nuestros hijos a la escuela, a la clinica. In our cars, we take our kids to school, to the clinic, to go to the bank. And they say so often that New Bedford is the top grossing fishing port in the country. But who is inside processing fish? It's us. Ventura says many undocumented people already drive, but now they'll be able to do so without the fear of breaking the law. They'll also be able to get car insurance, something advocates say will make everyone in the state safer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. In the other statewide ballot measures, Massachusetts approved the so-called millionaire's tax on a vote of roughly 52 to 48 percent. The ballot measure creates uh, amends the state constitution to impose a 4 percent surtax on individual incomes over $1 million. Voters also approved a question requiring dental insurance companies to spend at least 83 percent of premiums on patient care expenses and not on administrative costs. And people who cast ballots rejected the question that would have increased the number of alcohol licenses a retailer can have. Attleboro Mayor Paul Hero will be stepping down after he was elected yesterday to become the next sheriff of Bristol County. The Democrat defeated Republican and 25-year incumbent Tom Hodgson. Hero says he will demand transparency from staff at the Bristol County Jail. No withholding any, you know, any information, no twisting of information, 100% honesty. If you're not honest in a place like jail, you're, you're not only worthless to me, you're dangerous. 
Tom Hodgson faced criticism during his tenure for the conditions at the jail. He blamed his loss yesterday on the influx of money from groups outside of Massachusetts. Two political action committees from New York spent about $400,000 on Hero's campaign. This election may be affecting your ability to sleep. That's a finding of a new study from Beth Israel Deaconess. Researchers followed the sleep habits of more than 400 U.S. participants in 2020. Around the election, participants reported an increase in poor sleep quality. Tony Cunningham is director for the Center for Sleep and Cognition at Beth Israel. We may not be functioning optimally, you know, emotionally or cognitively, um, you know, around the, the days surrounding, you know, a major election. So, you know, give yourself a break and hopefully you can also find it uh, to, to give others a break as well during those times. The study also found an increase in alcohol use around Election Day. In sports tonight, the Celtics host the Detroit Pistons at the Garden. 7.30 tip-off time. Boston has won three games in a row, and the Bruins have the night off tonight. Forecast mostly clear tonight. Temperatures falling to about 41 overnight. Tomorrow, sunshine again. Temperatures on the way up should reach 65 tomorrow and then make it possibly to 70 for Veterans Day Friday, maybe Saturday as well. It is 46 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ProQuest, whose website, Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S., curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at ProQuest.com slash go slash Black Freedom. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. And I'm Elsa Chang. Midterms are traditionally tough for the party in power, especially for presidents whose popularity ratings are not that great. But last night, things went surprisingly well for Democrats and for President Biden. Today, he took a bit of a victory lap at the White House. It was a good day, I think, for democracy. And I think it was a good day for America. It was a rare, formal press conference for President Biden. And here to give us more details is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hey, Tam. Hey, Elsa. All right. So in recent history, presidents who do this day after the Election Day press conference, they've usually or they have used words like shellacking or thumping to describe what happened to their party in the midterms. Can you tell us, like, how did President Biden describe this election? Well, this wasn't a thumping or a shellacking, (laughs) and he avoided adding any new adjectives to the political lexicon. (laughs) Uh, I I would say that he was relaxed. He was confident. Uh, As we know, control of both the House and the Senate are still up in the air. But Mm -hmm. he said that the message that he took from the election was that the American people want him to work together with Congress. And to that end, he plans to invite leaders over to the White House later this month. But I have to say he was also unapologetic. Uh, When asked how he would change uh, or what he would change about his governing going forward, He said he wouldn't change a thing. But really, isn't it a little soon to be doing a victory lap here? Like, we don't even know how this is all going to shake out yet or how his agenda will be affected by the results, right? Yeah, he was asked about his agenda going forward, and he said that he would veto any attempts to reverse the legislation that he and Democrats passed in the first two years and that he would not accept any cuts to Medicare or Social Security. Um, In not so many words, he, he seemed to be saying that if Congress passed nothing else, he would still consider it a success to implement what has already been passed uh, in the in the first two years. And he was relatively dismissive of the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, saying that he hadn't had much need to interact with him before. Right. Um, 
If Republicans do end up winning control of the Senate, that could put the brakes on Biden's efforts to get judges confirmed. But with divided government, ambitions generally get scaled back. You and I have both covered divided government, Um, you know, and things like just keeping the lights on and keeping the government funded can be challenge enough. Um, Asked about potential investigations, including into his son, Hunter, um, Biden implied that Republicans could end up overreaching. I think the American people will look at all of that for what it is. It's just uh, almost comedy. I mean, it's uh, but, you know, look, I can't control what they're going to do. All I can do is continue to try to make life better for the American people. And that sounded to me like a president who, if his party doesn't have control of Congress, will take a political foil as a consolation prize. (laughs) Well, Biden has said in the past that he does intend to run for president in 2024. Do these midterms make that even more likely now? Like, what did he say about that? Yeah, he was asked a couple of times. He reiterated that he plans to run and that the midterms didn't affect that. But he also said, as he has before, that he respects fate uh, and that he has to have a family conversation, one that he expects will happen sometime between Thanksgiving and the new year. Um, Here's what he said. My judgment of running when I announce, if I announce, my intention is that I run again. But I'm a great respecter of fate. And uh, this is ultimately a family decision. I think everybody wants me to run, but they're going, we're going to have discussions about it. And I don't feel in any, any hurry one way or another. He was asked what he would say to Americans who don't want him to run, and he said, watch me. And then he was asked about uh, the possibility of former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis running, and he laughed and said that it would be fun to watch them take each other on. Anything else stand out to you from this press conference? He was asked to weigh in on Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter uh, with help from uh, foreign governments, including Saudi Arabia. And Biden said that uh, he thought that that was something that should be looked at though he he was quite careful in in choosing his words. That is NPR's Tamara Keith. Thank you so much, Tam. You're welcome. Statewide votes on abortion played a major role in the midterm elections. Where the issue was on the ballot, voters largely signaled support for abortion rights. NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon covers abortion policy, and she joins us now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alyssa. So we know that voters ranked abortion among the top issues of concern in these midterms. But let's talk about the places where the question was directly on the ballot. Where were these ballot initiatives and how did they do? Well, it was a big night for supporters of abortion rights. You know, in three states, voters approved proposals to shore up abortion rights in their state constitutions. A couple of those, Vermont and California, were no big surprise. Michigan, though, was a big win for abortion rights supporters. Voters there approved an amendment that was put forward through a signature process to guarantee what was described as reproductive autonomy. And Democrats also kept the governor's mansion, took over the state house in a year when abortion rights were front and center in the campaign there. So on top of those, Alyssa, there was Kentucky, a deeply red state, of course, but where abortion rights supporters still succeeded in quashing an amendment that would have been unfavorable to abortion rights. Anthony Romero is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union. His group got involved in several of these races. If you can win in a place like Kentucky, if you can win in a place like we did in Kansas, I mean, the Republican voters are not with the Republican leadership. So he's referring there to a similar vote in Kansas in August. And he says in this post-Roe v. Wade world where a dozen or so states have banned abortion, he believes voters are pushing back and signaling that they don't support that level of restriction. And that includes many Republicans, he says. 
What about the opponents of abortion rights? What are they saying about these results? So they acknowledge that some of these results are disappointing, but they're not willing to concede that they've lost the electorate on this issue. Anti-abortion groups have been focusing on the fact that they were outspent in many of these races by both Democratic candidates and groups like NARAL and Planned Parenthood, who invested heavily in messaging around abortion. I talked to Stephen Billy today. He's the vice president of state affairs for SBA Pro-Life America. I think we better learn our lesson from the ballot initiatives that were you know, we didn't win last night as we go forward. I mean, it's clear that the abortion industry wants to use the courts to try to take the issue um, out of voters' hands. It's clear that they would try to use ballot initiatives where they're able to use outside money and to try to use ballot initiatives as a way to thwart the legislative process. So the argument he's trying to make there is essentially that these ballot initiatives don't really reflect the will of the people, which is kind of a tough case to make. Polling has consistently shown a majority of Americans support abortion rights, even if they do favor some restrictions. And it is true, though, that some that supporters of abortion rights out fundraise and outspent their opponents in some of these states. But there also was heavy investment by anti-abortion groups and lots of door knocking by both sides. Uh, SBA, for example, just uh, announced that they'll spend about a million dollars in the Georgia Senate runoff to support Republican Herschel Walker. And Billy with SBA Pro-Life America also stressed some of the successes for Republicans, especially governors like Brian Kemp in Georgia and Ron DeSantis in Florida, who've all opposed abortion rights and won re-election by solid margins. You've been talking to people all year about their thoughts and feelings on abortion. Why do you think these anti-abortion laws are getting so much pushback now? Well, this was the first major election after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And I think what's happened is that we are seeing the impact of that decision, seeing the impact of abortion bans, you know, um, access shutting down in many states and a lot of confusion in many cases. So it's no longer hypothetical. We've also heard from voters who have some nuanced views on abortion, but ultimately say they feel some of these restrictions have gone too far. And I think we saw that reflected in the polling and also in some of these votes last night. NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you. Thank you. U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner is on her way to a remote Russian penal colony. That's according to her lawyers, who don't know exactly where she's being taken. President Biden says he is determined to get her home and that he hopes Russia will be ready to negotiate a prisoner swap. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Layers of injustice. That's how State Department spokesperson Ned Price describes Brittany Griner's legal saga in Russia. Brittany Griner has endured a sham trial, unjust sentencing, and now the transfer from a prison uh, to a remote penal colony. It's just another injustice. Uh, layered on top of her ongoing unjust and wrongful detention. U.S. officials don't know where the Russians are taking Griner, nor do her lawyers. It could be a couple of weeks before Russia notifies the U.S. about where she's due to serve her nine-year prison term. We expect Russian authorities to provide our embassy with regular, consistent access to all U.S. citizens detained in Russia. That, of course, includes Brittany Griner. They're obligated uh, to do so. Griner was arrested in February after what she admits was a mistake, packing vape cartridges with cannabis oil in her suitcase as she traveled to Russia, where she plays during the WNBA's offseason. A Russian who spent two years in a penal colony says the facilities are a relic from the Stalin era. This is Soviet Union system built for Soviet 
union prisoners. Maria Alyokina, who's with the feminist punk band Pussy Riot, says prisoners are forced to sew uniforms for the Russian police and live in crowded barracks. For 100 women, there are like three toilets and no hot water and there is no shower or bath. She calls Griner a hostage and says supporters of the basketball star should keep writing to her and talking about the case. The U.S. and Russia blame each other for the lack of progress in talks about a prisoner swap. We have not seen any desire from the U.S. to resolve the specific problems of people, says Maria Zakharova, the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman, speaking on Russian television. But the Biden administration says Russia has not engaged in good faith on its proposal, which would reportedly see a jailed Russian arms dealer released in exchange for Greiner and another American, Paul Whelan. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Meta plans to cut more than 11,000 jobs and is citing its corporate growth strategy as one of the reasons. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, are tech giants growing too fast? Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. Thanksgiving ordering now available with fresh turkeys, homemade sides, and desserts for the holiday. More info at volantefarms.com. Stocks took a dive the day after the midterms. The Dow gave up nearly 2 percent, 647 points. It closed at 32,514. S&P rose just over 2 percent to end the day at 37.49. The Nasdaq lost about 2.5 percent. It finally settled at 10,353. Burlington-based software company Everbridge is laying off 200 people. The company's stock is down more than 80 percent over the last year. Today, the new CEO, David Wagner, announced a lower growth forecast for next year. Everbridge makes communication software that businesses use to manage emergencies. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsythe, including a world premiere now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. It's the Celtics and the Pistons at the Garden tonight. Start time is 7.30. Bruins have the night off tonight. And suspended Boston Celtics coach Ime Udoka will not become the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn named uh, Jacques Vaughn to the post today. In the forecast, a clear night tonight should be beautiful with temperatures right about 41 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny again, should reach 65 degrees, then make it to possibly 70 degrees on Friday. 46 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Election results are still rolling in, and we don't yet know who will control Congress for the next two years. Republicans have made gains, but are still short at this point of reclaiming the House, with some contests yet to be called. The fate of the Senate is also still up in the air, and it may be for some time. In Georgia, Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker are headed to a runoff. There is an emerging 
picture of a divided country and the possibility of another narrowly split Congress. That could have serious and lasting consequences for the Biden presidency. That's something our next two guests have been thinking a lot about. Ron Bonjean is a GOP strategist with a long career of working for Republicans in both chambers of Congress. And Jim Messina is former deputy chief of staff to President Obama. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. So, Jim, I want to start with you here. As I look back on the Obama administration, Obamacare, of course, was a signature accomplishment. And it passed when Democrats had control of Congress. But shortly thereafter... Republicans took over the House, and President Biden may now find himself in a similar situation if Republicans do take control of the chamber. What could that mean for Biden's legislative agenda moving forward? Well, it means he's going to have to find things he can do with the Republicans. And when I was running the effort to pass Obamacare, we didn't take President Obama up to the Hill. We took Joe Biden because Joe Biden was really well respected by both sides and could cut the deals. And you saw him do that last year with the infrastructure bill, which passed with bipartisan support. So he's going to look for those things that he can work with the the House Republicans on. Uh, And then he'll look for ways to also, you know, say there's very clear differences between the parties. So both those things I think you'll likely see from the White House in the next two years. No matter which party controls the House, it looks like we will again see a narrowly divided chamber. Ron, if Republicans do take control, what might that look like for them? And Kevin McCarthy, who would be the likely House Speaker in that scenario? Right. I used to work uh, for a Speaker of the House that had a 5C majority in the 2000s when Republicans had control. And what we found are there are smaller groups of members that form that can have great leverage over whether bills come to the House floor and what they look like. You'll have smaller groups of people with louder voices and a bigger spotlight on them that will force the leadership to the table to negotiate and figure out how they can move forward. And additionally, there will be a lot of pressure on uh, likely incoming Speaker McCarthy um, to start using the House as a loudspeaker for the 2024 election to show America this is what we would do differently if we if we were given control of the White House. This is how we're going to lead. Jim, earlier this month, before the end of voting, President Biden said that it would be, and I'm quoting him here, a horrible two years if Democrats lost the House and Senate. And then he pointed out that he would have a veto pen at his disposal. To your mind, is that ultimately President Biden's sharpest tool in a narrowly divided Congress? He has three tools in a narrowly divided Congress. The first is his veto pen, uh, and he can definitely you know, express his displeasure. Uh, the second thing he can do is executive orders, and that's what President Trump did after he lost the House. That's what President Obama did. And the third thing is compromise. Right. So those are the three things that Joe Biden really has the ability to do. And I think you'll see him exercise all three. Ron, I want to ask you, do you have any concern at all that Republican leaders like McCarthy, who could end up as House Speaker, will have trouble keeping the caucus at bay, given some of the members, the potential members that have been elected that will be coming into the new Congress, and that that could potentially be an impediment to passing the kind of legislation that the party hopes to achieve? Um, One of the philosophies that we had in the 2000s is that we didn't bring anything to the floor unless we had a majority of the majority of members uh, supporting it. So if a majority of House Republicans would support a piece of legislation going to the floor, then it's going to make it there. 
that could mean that there will be a lot of uh, backroom negotiating um, and deal making before we get to that point. Um, the Freedom Caucus and other members are going to be very outspoken and demanding attention and demanding they get their due. We've already seen, um, you know, uh, uh, lots of documents being put forward by the Freedom Caucus on what they are planning to do next year, which shows how forceful their, their loudspeaker is going to be. Inflation was a top issue heading into the midterms, and Republicans across the country blamed President Biden and Democrats for rising costs. But I'd like to ask each of you, is a divided government in some ways good for the economy? This is Ron. I'd have to say yes, um, because one of the reasons that we're in an inflationary period is because of a large amount of government spending. With a check on the Biden administration, I don't think we're going to see the trillions of dollars going to the president's desk for a signature. Um, so yes, I do think it would be very healthy for the economy. The economy does need to cool off in order to bring inflation down. So more spending probably isn't the answer. This is Jim. I see it a little bit differently. I, I think what is what is true is that all around the world you're seeing this inflation happen. And it's in large part because of the time we're in post-COVID, uh, and then the Ukrainian war, it's not like these other countries aren't having the same problems. And I think this is the time when, you know, both parties need to find ways to move the economy forward. Um, I think the country likes divided government as little as Ron and I want it in our personal lives. Uh, the country really <laughs> likes it. And that's why, you know, seven of the last eight elections, either the White House, the House or the Senate has flipped. Voters really do want both parties to work together. And I'm hopeful that both parties will start to get that message. I'd like to ask you before we let you go, for each of you, you've both been in Washington for quite some time. You know a number of the players who will be governing this country in the new year with this likely divided government. What's one piece of advice you have for how to govern a divided country effectively? This is Jim Messina. I think that very clear communication uh, and making sure people understand exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then second, never forget the people that elected you and that what they want. And they keep saying over and over and over to both parties, we want you to work together. We want you to figure out some of these things. And, you know, my advice would be listen to the voters. They are much smarter than they're given credit for in Washington, D.C. This is Ron Bonjean. I think that's a really great point to keep the phone lines open, the communication lines open between the White House, the speaker and the majority leader while the politics are being played out to be able to talk to each other and figure out where there could be any points of common ground. And we have seen a number of members not win their elections um, because they didn't listen to the voters back home. They got caught up in the national spotlight and the attention you get from um, taking uh, more hardline positions, and they aren't coming. Many of them aren't coming back. So I think it's really important to um, stay stay in touch with your elected leaders, um, with you know, to find out where the pressure points are to get things done. Ron Bonjean is a Republican strategist, and Jim Messina is the former Deputy Chief of Staff to President Obama. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections with condo common area consultations as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com, and Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges.